Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey, gang, Mike and Mark with you. Hope you're all healthy and happy. You know, our guest today is one of those rarest of rare people. He's a baseball Hall of Famer. He's also a Hall of Fame human being. It's Trevor Hoffman, best closer for our money in National League history, certainly. And he's a good friend and a former teammate of yours, Mark. Yeah, interesting, Mike. I couldn't wait for this episode. Uh, Not only is he a good friend, but as you mentioned, uh, the teammate that you expect, uh, the work ethic that you admired, uh, but being a competitor against him, but also being a teammate of his, it was extra special. There are so many moments, Mike, that he can talk about, but his humility always sticks out. And I can't wait to hear these stories, especially with the Hall of Fame. Trevor, marvelous 18-year career, uh, National League record still, 601 career saves. Let's go back to what we believe is your huge moment, and that comes as the back end of your fabulous career, your induction into the Hall of Fame in 2018. Take us back to that moment when you got the call and the emotions you felt at the time. Yeah, it uh, it was the third year on the ballot, Uh, gotten to the point that my rise on percentage points was, was going in the right direction. And I really felt confident going into that third year that, uh, uh, being able to achieve another 1%, I finished at 74%, uh, was going to get me over the top. And so, uh, we had a little gathering at the house. We had an opportunity to, uh, um, time it at two o'clock, uh, that, uh, the call would come in at a certain window and, um, it was a kind of a wait and see, you know, it was a, it was a tenuous hour, but, uh, you know, for those that don't know my older brother, he kind of was able to, uh, kind of bring some levity to the situation and, and humor. He always does. <laughs> and, um, I had my phone sitting on the table waiting for a potential phone call from Jack O'Connell, uh, president of the baseball writers association. And, I wasn't really paying attention. Um, my phone rings. It's obviously on, on ringer, um, not muted. And everyone kind of heard the phone ring and just assumed it was Jack. And I, I looked down and I said, oh, don't worry about it. False, false alarm is just my brother, Glenn, who's standing right, <laughs> right there. And, and only he, you know, he just took such delight in the fact that he <laughs> pumped the whole room. And um, 15 minutes later, the real call came through, and I, I think I think it was a neat way to break the the tension that was in the room, and and also get us ready for that phone call. Trevor, when you get that phone call and you hear Jack O'Connell on the other end, uh, take us into that. I, I mean, it, it gives me chills even thinking about that opportunity that you get that phone call. Um, Obviously relief, but you're celebrating with the closest friends, including uh, your wife, Tracy, and your three sons. Yeah, it was uh, that anticipation. You hope it's going to happen. You don't know if it's going to happen. And then ultimately it does. And like in a blink of an eye, your your whole career kind of passes before your eyes and all the people and teammates that had a had a part in that journey all in one moment. And then you try and regather yourself and actually sound like you're a normal human being on a phone call, even though it's being filmed, it's being projected throughout the room. But um, yeah, to have the opportunity to uh, let him know that the room was filled with people waiting to explode and getting that opportunity to, to do that with everyone was, was a lot of fun, but uh, you're right. It's, 
it's an anticipation um, that you want to have happen. Um, and then when it finally does, you, you just kind of are overcome with, with emotion. You get the call in the winter, but you get inducted in the summer. When does it actually sink in, Trevor, that uh, this is real, that you're an actual member of <laughs> the Baseball Hall of Fame? Yeah, we go. You go through an orientation uh, probably a month or two afterwards, where you're 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 in Cooperstown at the back end of the winter, so it's cold. There aren't a ton of people walking around, so you can maneuver the the town pretty easily without getting stopped, and really get a sense and a feel of what's going to happen and all the people that are involved, all the moving parts, you're going to get a chance to get to know a little bit better in that setting before it gets crazy. Cause you're right. July is uh, the, the town, the village of Cooperstown swells to hundred thousand people. And um, you're, you're sequestered in a, the, the Lake Otisaga hotel. You're, you're, you're got blinders on, you're going from one thing to the next and it's a whirlwind. And so, that that opportunity to go to Cooperstown and recognize the museum's content, uh, purpose, and and to know that you're a part in that that hall where all the plaques are, and where you're going to be stationed, uh, man, it's uh, it's it's chilling. It's not easy to get there. We had some some difficulty travel wise where we got stuck in Philly where our connector wasn't going to Cooperstown and. We, we tried to get our clothes. The clothes weren't coming off the plane. And so what we were wearing, we were wearing to Cooperstown for the next three days. So it uh, was a situation where we rented a car. We drove to Cooperstown. We got in late. But like I mentioned, what we wore that day, there was a lot of footage that they took. I was wearing the same Pacific baseball shirt for my son. And he was all jazzed that he got the pub, the school got the pub or whatever, but we, we were welcoming our, our clothes throughout that, that two day event. Trevor, what was that like uh, when you realize uh, the space that your plaque is going to be put on the wall? Um, was there something that you remembered that day that had a, a specific impact on you? Well, being, roughly 20, 25 feet away from the inaugural class um, at the end of the rotunda, the way the, the sunlight was coming through the well, window panels or the window panes, um, just the way it lit up at the end of the hallway as you walk towards it. Cause I did, I wasn't quite sure. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure where, where they were going to, where, where my plaque was going to be at. And so it just so happened that that, was the way they came back to that part of the room. And as I mentioned, to be that close to the inaugural class and to have a prominent spot. I mean, just being in the room is obviously a prominent spot, but uh, it was pretty cool to uh, to know where you're going to be at, to see the light bouncing off of the plaques. Uh, obviously no plaque for me, but just a space that you signed underneath it. And uh, yeah, it just got to put it to in reality, you know, honestly, everything was kind of an, in your own imagination, how you would maybe view it and see it and how it would play out. And then now things, these pieces of reality uh, that you're going through are starting to paint the picture. Yeah. You're pretty, uh, um, I would say a guy that, that respects the history of the game of baseball. How is that going around, uh, you know, with your, with your kids and being able to uh, enjoy that moment because that has to be special in itself. Yeah, I think when uh, you get to July and 
you get that opportunity to bring in family and it's a bit busy, but when they see the number of baseball fans that pour into Cooperstown, it's just a baseball love fest. It's not necessarily my team's better than your team. It's, it's, it's to honor a lot of those people that had significant roles in the game. And it's, it's kind of hard to put in the terms that you're just dad. And, you know, when you got to take the cell phone away when they're little kids or you have to discipline, you know, cause you, you just weren't being very nice to your mom or, you know what, you abuse the X games, Xbox. And, you know, when, when, when you don't do your thing, you don't get the Xbox, mom's not happy. <laughs> and nothing's right. In the world. Yeah, exactly. So, you know how that works. And to, to ultimately share a moment where they're like, Oh my gosh, dad, you know, what, what, what are you doing there with, <laughs> with the likes of Hank Aaron and Johnny Bench and, you know, so many of the legends of, of, of Cooperstown. And then to see the plaques of all these legends of those that aren't still with us, it's just to think of that as the fraternity that you're moving into. Um, it's hard to describe. And it was, it was, it was cheeky to be able to do that with your family and your kids that, do try and play the game and, and have an appreciation for it on their level. It just kind of blows their mind away a little bit that, uh, you know, dad did do this for a little bit. The daunting task is the speech. Um, I, my last speech that I remember was probably uh, researching Larry Bird in, in as a junior <laughs> in high school, uh, because that was my idol. Uh, you have to do a speech and it's uh, probably consuming a lot of your career uh special thanks so many things uh what went into that for you and and how hard was that um to necessarily put it in uh, a few minutes because uh with the huge class that you went in with there's some restrictions but uh that had to be a daunting task for you and it took a long time it, it really was you don't want to jack it up you want to make sure that it's um understandable it's respectful and as you mentioned within the time frame they, they gave you with six people going in um they, they narrowed down to 10 minutes a person um which was which was fine um but i didn't want to get started like the next day after coming back from cooperstown there's just so many thoughts you know i looked at some other guys um speeches and didn't necessarily pluck things that i like but some things will stand out just how they maybe honored their family, how they honored teammates that they played with, how they honored um, stories. And, and, and I'll, I'll give you the one tip that they did from the hall ask is that maybe you have it written out. And as you'd mentioned, we kind of done research on um, topics that we have to speak about from time to time. And you do it by notes. You have these, you know, big headings. You're like bird, great shooter. Okay. And I'm going to go into, how I'm going to discuss that or, or how it might relate to me. They, they asked like, it's going to be a big moment. You're going to be up on that stage and your name's going to get called and you're going to get behind the podium and you're going to look out and you're going to see roughly 50,000 people. And this isn't something you do for a living. And they're right. And it would have been an overwhelming moment. And if you get tripped up or you get long winded on something, it could, you could lose the effect. And so that advice to have it written out so that you could, virtually read it verbatim but you wanted you know i'd spent enough time writing it that it felt natural and it felt you know places that i could pause or you know try and slow down even though i knew i was a little bit quick but 
for the most part, I wanted a theme. I wanted to kind of weave my, my career through, uh, a guy like John Wooden, who was important to me and some of his quotes and just how, you know, it impacted the viewpoints on, on how I tried to go about being a teammate, how I tried to go about working as an athlete, how I tried to work about being humble in certain things. And, you know, it's, he kind of set the framework on what you want to do. And we had a, a favorite book of the family, Inch and Miles, a cartoon character book of his pyramid of success. And it talk, it kind of lays it out perfectly, these building blocks. And so it gave me kind of that framework to go off of, but uh, it took all the pressure off. I knew that everything was written down in front of me. If I get tripped up or if I get emotional, all I have to do is put my finger down. I can find where I'm at. And I had big font. I need to go get these glasses so I could see. I, I, I mean, they, they printed it out like microscopic. I go, Jess, I can't read this, man. What are you doing to me? Thank God I had glass. So, you know, they went to the 32 font or whatever I was able to read. I, I might have been flipping through pages left and right, but, man, I, it was helpful to be able to see. Um, but it was an enjoyable experience. It wasn't something that uh, – I was struggling with it. Uh, it was something that you dream about getting a chance to deliver. And uh, it was a pretty cool class to do it with. You know, folks, if you're out there listening and you want to catch that uh, speech, it's fantastic. Go ahead and check it out on YouTube. Just dig it up very easily. Trevor Hoffman's Hall of Fame speech 2018 pops right up. It's it's fantastic. You know, it's interesting to me too, Trevor, is you're talking about the uh, possible intimidation of looking out into a sea of 50,000 plus people, which is basically what you pitch in front of every night. <laughs> I'm thinking more about looking behind you when I see a Hall of Fame induction speech and I see all those legends behind those sunglasses, stoic, sometimes smiling. I, ca I would think what's behind you is scarier than what's in front of you. What was that like in your indoctrination into that fraternity at that moment? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, honestly, because everyone is so receptive to knowing what you're going through, having been it, man, they, they couldn't be more excited for you. They couldn't be more, um, we'll say, open arms to the that fraternity. And I think because of that um, openness and that uh, that want and desire for you to be comfortable it took takes a lot of the pressure off, but you're right. You turn around and you see Ozzy Smith and you see Hank Aaron, as I mentioned. I mean, these are pillars of, of the hall and you're right. You know, you could be getting caught up in what you're trying to say to you, the masses in front and your family, but then you, you talk about not wanting to mess up uh, to the legends. I, I think you, you could probably get away with saying anything. If you keep it under two minutes, you'll get a standing O from them because that's kind of what they want to, they want from you. But, uh, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you, you got to do what you got to do. Uh, Trevor, when you are going through this process, you're pulled in every direction and, and, uh, being there as a former teammate of yours, um, it was fascinating, uh, how the organization of the San Diego Padres set up parties, um, events for you, so everyone could really celebrate this moment with you. How did that make you feel, especially having uh, ex-teammates, former teammates of, of yours that, that were around? Yeah, super pumped that so many people were able to make that journey. But as you mentioned, as a member of the Potter organization, um, they, they did not miss Gott and I are crossing the T. They, uh, they had the good fortune of Mr. Ember going in a couple – years beforehand. And so a lot of the same personnel that uh, took care of the logistics on that trip with Dick 
had the foresight to, you know, hey, where do you, where do you, where should we have Friday night's gathering um, if Hoffy goes in? Where should we have the Saturday night gala um, after the the parade of legends in, into Main Street Cooperstown? And man, they uh, they didn't spare any expense. It was tremendous celebration. I mean, to know when Hall of Famers coming up to you going, hey man, I heard you guys. The word on the street is the pottery parties are pretty good. Um, that, that tells a lot about the time and effort that everyone put in. I know that they wanted to make sure it was a, a tremendous celebration. They really did. They did really hit it out of the ballpark. Uh, being around you and uh, covering that event, uh, not only was it a source of pride for all of us that have been around you, um, but it was really a relief because we realized exactly what you did your whole career, Trevor, was you did it with class. You did it with dignity, um, respect. There's so many words that that really showcase that. But I want to go back to that event after that speech, after the moments that you have. Uh, you get to go back to that beautiful hotel and the resort that you mentioned earlier. Um, and you get to have an event with the other Hall of Famers. Can you take us into that? It's there's initiation, there's a realization that now it's it's a finality. Uh, what was that like for you? Yeah, you, you've heard about you know that portion of it from other guys, um, and you're not quite sure how you're going to react. But you know, leading up to that that last portion, you know, you have the induction. You come back, you take your pictures with the plaque. You're out on the, the grassy area behind the hotel. And then you're, again, you're just kind of gathering your thoughts and hanging out with your family. And uh, all of a sudden I hear this voice above my head yelling, Hoffman, Hoffman. And I was a little angry, you know, in the voice I could, I could hear, it. I turn and, and it's Mr. Bench summon me up the veranda to sit, sit next to him and, and have a word. I thought I was great. I mean, I'm, I've been here freaking 20 minutes and I'm in trouble. And <laughs> what did I do? You know, shocker if I found trouble, but, um, it was his, you know, he, he, he's scared. He goes, look at, I wasn't trying to, you know, yell at you, but, uh, I had, you're the last one I got to get to. Cause, uh, he started a tradition when T Gwynn went in and Cal Ripken jr. Went in that that was the year he started sitting guys down and, and just like myself, just wanted to have a few moments uh, to bring some levity to the moment. And we sat in a rocking chair. He says, start rocking and look out over the lake if you would and see the trees in the distance and the beautifully manicured golf course to our left and big oak trees. And he goes, you've been, you've been taking care of your, your family and loved ones that uh, have come out to celebrate this weekend with you. Uh, there's been a lot of commitments and, Right now, I want you to take the time to to realize you're now a Hall of Famer. And, man, talk about goosebumps at the moment and still today thinking about it. It was pretty cool that he took the time really to, to, to give me that moment because um, it, it is a whirlwind and it's something that's going to be, you know, quickly over and done. And you, sometimes you might not have a chance to just take a deep breath and and take it in. You, you will when you come back the following years, subsequent years, but – you won't have had the, the stage that you have as an inductee. And so that was fantastic to, to, to share that with them. I appreciated it. And from there, we immediately go, go into the, the space where dinner's going to be at. And, and I've said it in the past, it immediately hits me. 
what my teammate Tony Gwynn was talking about. He'd see, didn't know where the heck to go when he walked into that room. And what I mean by that is he, he walked in, he sat down at a table and he looked around and he said, he saw Harmon Killebrew and, and <laughs> Willie Mays and, and Hank Aaron. And they looked at him and he's looking at them. And it's like, he knows is has a relationship with a lot of them and, and, and know them, but they're like, buddy, you're a bunch of Judy, man. This is the bopper <laughs> table. Get your tail out of here. And, yeah, I, could, I could hear Tony laughing probably and, and feeling a little bit embarrassed to have to move on. But he found Rod Carew and he found, you know, some other guys that had a lot of hits and singles <laughs> and sat down at that table. And so it immediately hits me, like, as I'm walking through the threshold of the, the door jam, shit, where do I sit? And <laughs> stay away from the 300 win guys and look for a, a save crew. But uh, there wasn't really a table like that. But one of my former teammates, Greg Maddox was kind of seeing me wander around and not really grabbing a, a chair. And he, he said, Hoffy, come here. This will be a good seat for you. So he took, took the pressure off and allowed me to sit down. So it was pretty funny. Trevor, uh, close friends uh, are mean so much to you. And why I say this, the, Otisaga Resort Hotel is like Fort Knox. Uh, There's not many people that get in there. Uh, Glenn Doshea, a good friend of yours, um, he had the opportunity to set up a private party. And that's difficult to get. And it's right (laughs) outside um, near the fire pit, which is really the congregation part of where you want to go and have those conversations. But that personalized it for you. Um, it was a relief to see all the, the good friends, Mark Kotze, Mark Loretta, Brad Osmus, to name a few. But what was that like? Be, because it was really a personalized way of doing it at a resort that you couldn't get into. You mentioned Fort Knox, man. <laughs> unless, you're, you're, unless you're storming the beach off of the lake or you're hoofing 18 holes and trying to sneak a glimpse. Yeah, you're not getting on property. And for Glenda you know, have the relationship with the museum, um, in his own right to real, to, 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 to have a room secured that was directly below the, the space that we were having the hall of fame dinner above. And to your point, um, have a gathering right afterwards. I mean, it was, you, you go from, you know, meeting all your new found friends, we'll say, and, uh, people that you're going to share year upon year, um, these inductions with, but then to really get to celebrate with your friends and um, the close people that are a part of your career right afterwards and really <laughs> kind of let your hair down. That was something special to, to be able to share that with so many people that took the time to come back for it. Well, Trev, if the hall marks the final chapter in the book of an elite player's career, let's go back to the very beginning. You know, a lot of fans know just a bit about your story drafted as a shortstop by the Reds in 1989, an infielder like your brother Glenn, who was a big leaguer for a lot of years. Your hitting, though, doesn't come around. You become a pitcher. You get plucked by the Marlins in the 1992 expansion draft, and you're in the big leagues out of the gate in 93. What do you remember about your conversations with your two older brothers, Glenn and Greg, and the rest of your family when you found out you'd be on the big league team? Uh, there was a lot of pride. Um, there was a little bit of shock too, because they're like, "Man, this happened pretty fast." You go, you do, you go from a crappy hitter to booting balls in the infield to you know fast track on the bull, on the mound, and you know I, I don't think having any expectation or um, 
you know, a situation that you can kind of think back upon as far as, you know, I've done this before because I really, I hadn't pitched um, a year in front of that in the, you know, since little league. And so the re the reality of something like this happening so quick was, was kind of blowing a lot of people away. So I was fortunate that I was around a lot of Glenn's former coaches. Marcel Latchman was our pitching coach. Uh, Frank Reberger was our bullpen coach. Doug Rader was our third base coach. Renee Latchman, the manager, all these, these guys Glenn um, played with or against at some point in time, Veda Pinson was our bench coach. Cookie Rojas was on the staff. So, I mean, it was a, a who's who of, 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 you know, the game and it's in itself for an inaugural team. And they only knew me as Glenn's little brother, really. And Hey, let's give him a shot. I had a good spring and it was able to make it. And we broke uh, spring training going South probably the first team to ever do that because most everybody will leave to go north out of Florida or, or Arizona. And so um, that was neat um, to be able to share that um, uh, with family. It was great to be able to be a part of that team with uh, a guy that I, I played my first professional team with in Billings, Montana. Scotty Pose was our starting center fielder, and he and I played together uh, in the red system. And um, so to be able to sit next to him on that plane, to kind of like needle one another, I go, we've come a long way since Billy's Montana <laughs> and uh, achieved this. And it, it was, it was pretty awesome. So um, yeah, pretty neat little start to, to the career. Second game of the year, you have your first appearance. Can you take us back into it? Where, where were you uh, mentally and how did that feel? Yeah, I was uh, kind of waiting. I was the last guy called out of the bullpen. Um, probably because Renee didn't, <laughs> didn't know too much about me to begin with and was probably looking for a soft landing. Well, he didn't find a soft landing. He saw a tie ball game in the eighth bases loaded two outs and he went out to make a pitching change and they called my number to come in and face Eric Davis. I was fortunate to sneak a little cheese by him, got the punch out and my night was done. But uh, who knows? I mean, things could have changed on a dime there. Um, I got indoctrinated to what the big leagues can be like in a, in a short period of time, how important every pitch is important. It is to locate um, and not be intimidated as for, I'm looking down the barrel of somebody that, you know, is from the LA area. I uh, heard a ton about, uh, I came from the red system. Um, I remember him in the reds um, on the reds team in 90 being a huge part of it before he injured his kidney and, and, um, he was a legend with the Reds. And so now I'm facing him in a Dodger uniform. So, I mean, you, you learn really fast that there's lots of ins and outs to the game and um, you're going to get challenged along the way. 23 days later, you pick up your first big league save, Trev. First of 601. Uh, at the time, though, who knows how this thing's going to unfold for you career-wise. Was it a place as a closer you, you felt instantly comfortable in that role or did it take time to adjust to getting those final three outs. Yeah, I, I realized how different the last three outs were, to be very honest with you. I mean, I'd, I'd been kind of working my way towards the back end of the pen um, in more leverage situations and couldn't have been more overwhelmed, really, with, with what that felt like, um, trying to get the last three outs. Arv had to go home and take care of some personal stuff, and, and I got that opportunity in Atlanta, and... Um, you know, it, it kind of, it, it made me realize then at an early point that 
there is a little bit of difference between the sixth, seventh, and eighth and trying to nail down a game. You know, the, the team works so hard to to navigate through a game and hand off the ball with the win intact to nail it down. And if you don't, and unfortunately it didn't happen that night, but when you don't, it it just depletes the, the wind out of your team's sails. You know, they have to continue to go back out and fight. You're like, you're there, you're on the, you're on the cusp of the finish line and to have that ripped away, man, it does, does damage the team, not only that game, but uh, how, how you're going to progress through a series or even a road trip or homestand or whatever. And so I, I recognize pretty quickly that this is, you know, you gotta, you gotta dial it up a little bit. Your, your focus has got to be that much better than, than what it's been in the past. So, um, but also just kind of put your head down and, and do what you do, you know, stay with your strengths and don't get caught up in trying to do something and be something you're not. Well, mental toughness is such a big part of what you guys collectively do for a living. At that level, it's extraordinary. Your mental toughness was tested so early in your career. As you said, you're going to the back end of a ball game under big league pressure to produce a final three outs. Two months plus after you uh, you break into the big leagues, you're then traded from the Marlins to the Padres, uh, where you spend the bulk of your career. Gary Sheffield, a star for the Padres, gets flipped over to the Marlins. You get sent out west. Uh, I would imagine you had certain feelings because in San Diego, that was not a popular deal at the time. What was it like for you? Yeah, it wasn't. And, and, I, and I was, you know, gaining traction in, in, in Florida uh, as someone that I felt like they wanted to, to hang on to. Um, because of some of the success I was having, but what I didn't realize is you become part, you know, of, of a chip in another way, like for them to get a, a piece uh, to their puzzle, they needed a guy like Gary Sheffield who oh, just missed the triple crown was younger than myself actually. And it had more time in the big leagues and was um, really something anybody would want on their team. And they had a chance to get it with, kind of an unproven couple pieces that, you know what, who knows what kind of career this guy's going to have, but we have the opportunity to get a bonafide hitter and power hitter and a third baseman. Let's do it. And at the time I didn't get it. You know, I was like, what, what, what did I do wrong kind of thing? And that's when I relied on some tutelage from my, my older brother, Glenn. He's like, Hey man, you're, you're getting to go back home. You're going to be a hundred miles from mom and dad. They're going to be able to come down and watch you. Um, it's a situation where they're not going to be expected to win. They're, they're going through a fire sale. They're getting, letting all their proven pieces go. They're acquiring a lot of young talent. Um, the, the architect behind that was Randy Smith, uh, who I'm still close with that, you know, was able to bring back pieces under those conditions that turned out to be pretty, pretty darn good. You know, Swain's mentioned Brad Osmus, a, a teammate of mine that, you know, was able to make it all the way back to Cooperstown for me that we, we became part of that team within a, three weeks of one another. I remember walking through the, the tunnel in, in Wrigley Field and him and Andy Ashby, Ash almost, well, did smoke his head at the top of the dugout because we didn't know that you, you're supposed to duck. <laughs> Brad being smaller kind of snuck right on through. But within three weeks of me going to San Diego, I I'd had the opportunity to be next to some lifelong friends. And so um, you never really know what, what's going to be around the next corner in the game of baseball. You kind of, you can't get too comfortable anywhere you're at. 
Um, you never know how long it's going to be for. And that's kind of when you got to, you got to focus on doing your job. I was fortunate that that last, that next stop, I was able to spend 15 years in San Diego and, you know, wouldn't trade them for the world. Had a chance to be a part of an organization that understood continuity. You know, Kevin Towers took over Randy Smith, hired Bruce Bochy and, uh, those two guys worked extremely well together with the relationship they they'd built um, and put together winning ball clubs that San Diego hasn't seen the likes of for a while. And um, many, many guys came through our clubhouse and Swain's going to attest to this. Like we all had, we all had roles. We all respected one another. I, I remember having conversations with, with the group that we have, we have all-stars in this, in this locker room. And yet, guys, it's important that we all check our ego in the door when you walk into this clubhouse because we're a team and we got to learn to pull on the same rope together. We got to learn to have fun. We got to learn to call people out. And really, those type of conversations, man, you just, you're thankful for it. Well, Trevor, you go to the playoffs in 1996. Um, you have some special moments. You're starting to develop that work ethic that's uh, resonating obviously on your teammates, uh, the organization, but throughout baseball, uh, closing out games. But I want to I fast forward into 1998 because that's a special year individually, but also collectively. You make your first All-Star game, and this is starting to snowball uh, with this team and, and something that, that really became special. Yeah, it, it, it was. Um, I, I remember, as you can too, Swain, the – the deviation that we had to take to leave when we were leaving to play the we're leaving the Mets series and somehow, some way we're, we're going out of, um, uh, not going out of LaGuardia. We're going out of Newark and <laughs> that, that ride took us right by the Bronx and Yankee stadium. And we all kind of collectively looked out the window and said, you know, our journey's going to go through there. Probably. I mean, the Yankees were having, uh, a historical year at the time. Um, our paths ended up meeting up. It was ironic that that would happen. Obviously, a lot of things we had to overcome and, and conquer to get to that point. Um, what an amazing journey uh, with an amazing group of guys that showed the fortitude, that showed, you know, what it meant to, to sacrifice as a teammate, what it meant to sacrifice personal situations for the betterment of something bigger. And, you know, it's winning has a lot to do with that. Winning helps, but uh, I think ultimately, when you have a chance to share those type of things with a group of guys, it's uh, it's pretty special. Interesting that you mentioned that. And for our listeners, uh, being on that team and being the twenty fourth, twenty fifth guy on the roster, uh, I was on a ride and absolutely loved it. And why I say this is that uh, what made that team special and I'd love to hear your take on it, is uh, the dinners on the road, um, the bus rides going to and from the ballpark, to and from the airports. Uh, we had a special bond that I think people don't realize um, comprises a special team. Uh, you, said, you mentioned winning helps that, but also the camaraderie, uh, the relationships that you have uh, that are never-ending. What was your impression of that and how special that team was? Well, honestly, you're too kind to drop the 24th, 25th guy on, on our, <laughs> on our team. Yeah. Prolific pinch hitter that you are and were, um, I think it kind of showed 
everyone had a role and everyone was a part of, of something bigger than themselves. And yeah, it was honestly, you know, the, the, the relationships were first and foremost. And you, you mentioned team dinners, you know, that's, it's one thing to go out and, and play a game. You might not really like the person you're, you're, you're suiting up with. Uh, you might have differences and you just go out and you plug away and you're trying to, to win a ball game. But man, we'd, we'd, we'd show up in a, in a, in a city and there'd be 20 guys going to dinner. And that's where you kind of get to know, you know, what someone's all about, like what's in their heart and what's, uh, what they care about and, you know, what's going on with their families and, you know, just fun. I mean, we, we, we just tried to, it's a long grind. I mean, the baseball seasons can be long. And so when you have an opportunity to share a lot of, a lot of intimate moments um, away from the baseball field, whether it's at a dinner or the bus rides or a fair game, if you, if you did something stupid and, <laughs> you know, you tripped and fell in the, in the field and, or you made a boo-boo or something, it was going to get called out. You knew it was coming <laughs> and, and how you were going to handle it was, and there was, it was fair game. It didn't matter if you were Teague Wynn, Kevin Brown, or Andy Sheets, it was, it was on. And so, um, and I think guys respected that. I think that's what allowed us to play so, so well with one another and understand this was something unique and enjoy the ride. Hey, Trev, you know, you hear this all the time, guys who make it to the World Series, uh, when they're young, they think, well, I'll be back. And when you're an older player, you have a whole different perspective. For you, I believe, if my math's correct, it was like your sixth year into the league of an 18-year career. What was it like for you pitching in the World Series or just being there as part of a teammate in the World Series as compared to any other experience you had on the field in the game? Yeah, a little bit of an out-of-body experience. I mean... The, the city and town of San Diego was going bonkers for a month straight. And, you know, I'd never experienced that. You know, the, the first hint of that was in 96 going to the postseason in and out with the, the Cardinals. They kind of uh, took, took care of business pretty quick. And so to have this long run where we had to go, you know, through September to try and win it, the, 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 the division, um, a series against Houston, a series against Atlanta, to get to the world series um, and all the days off in between and the workouts. I mean, it just, man, it's magical, but uh, you're right. You, you, you not necessarily think it's going to happen every year because this way some organizations and teams are built, you're going to add and subtract people along the way. Um, very rarely is it going to be a situation where I think New York was actually in a run where they went to, four or five in a row or something like that in that window. And we just happened to be one of their opponents in that middle of that whole thing. And, you know, Atlanta that we had to get through had won 15, I think divisions when they're all said and done. And so, you know, to, to compete against some of the elite teams that have ever played um, looking back, there's really not much I would have changed. I mean, I, obviously I can still see a two, two heater that I threw right down the middle of Scott Brocious that flew out of center field, but, you know, in the moment, I thought I thought I was executing the pitch that I should have, and so um, there's not an opportunity to sit back and armchair quarterback and understand these moments. And when I when I see playoff games now, it's you wonder what the narrative is going to be for somebody's particular career, and you know the success that 
you can get on and, and, and ultimately how it will fuel that particular year, but how it will fuel someone's career moving forward for the next time that they get in and, and hopefully get in. And as you mentioned, sometimes it takes a, a few years to get back. Um, unfortunately, I never made it back to a World Series, but uh, it wasn't for lack of effort. Trevor, when you uh, go through a moment, obviously it doesn't culminate in a, a World Series championship, but you're in you know, second place. Um, they don't necessarily celebrate too much, uh, but the city of San Diego was starving for that type of winner. What did that mean to you, being able to celebrate with the city of San Diego and all the Padre fans? Yeah, I think it took a little bit of the, 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 the bitter taste that you have in your mouth. Um, for and in and out, we got swept. Uh, but I, I think the exhaustion that our city community felt, like they just, they just were wanting to celebrate a great run. Um, obviously, your, your goal is, as an athlete is to always win. And people remember winners. They don't remember the guys that come in second. But this, this, this city and this organization was lifted up because no one had really gotten that close in a long time. Um, our football team. Um, hadn't won. Um, our baseball organization was there in 84 and didn't win. So it was few and far between these opportunities and they appreciated it. And the, the way they embraced our, our team uh, and still do, um, honestly, says a lot about the, the, the baseball fan here in San Diego. It says a lot about how they pay attention to players across the country and what their talents do do have. And um, I think they appreciate that when, when teams do get to come through, they understand how hard it is and, and they, they celebrate with us in that moment. Guys, no doubt 98 was a special year for you and as a team, but personally, Trevor, it was the first of your seven all-star appearances, but I want to get your thoughts on your second all-star game because that came a year later in 1999 for fans who remember, this is the game that was in Fenway park with Ted Williams and Tony Gwynn when the nominees for the all century team were revealed. Then Trevor, where does that 99 all-star game rank for you among your favorite MLB experiences? Yeah, Mike, uh, you know, honestly, it, it's, it's on par with as big of a moment as the hall of fame really was. Cause they celebrated the all century team. They brought back Warren Spawn. They brought back Hank Aaron. They brought back Cal Ripken Jr. They, you know, just the, the people got brought back. Cal was, or uh, Ken Griffey Jr. was playing and Ripken was still participating. But honestly, to, to have that many greats in one spot on a field and a, such an iconic field that um, the historical perspective that Fenway Park represented. And again, to, to look around and see that you're a part of it, man, is uh, it was another eye-popping moment. And so, you know, here I'm, I'm there with, you know, my young family. My boys had no clue what was going on. All they wanted to do was hit wiffle balls. And so when Home Run Derby was in full swing and Mark McGuire was hitting – 15 bombs out my guys were in the shower trying to hit it through the the, the tile because um, that's where that's where we were having fun spending uh the all-star experience so um it was it was fantastic to see the different levels of what baseball can give you and whether it's someone that i looked up to and had great admiration for their career or someone as little as my two-year-old son 
just excited to play with dad and a big league clubhouse that he had no clue what it was just kind of shows you, you know, the many reaches that the game of baseball has. Uh, part of your identity, Trevor, which I think is, is fascinating. It's a song, uh, hell's bells. Yeah. And uh, the way everything starts, uh, I've been on both sides of it as a teammate, which I absolutely loved uh, being on the opposition, hearing hell's bells. I'd love to hear your take because uh, especially at Petco Park, when you open that door and that first uh, sound comes out of hell's bells, what was it like for you? Uh, because I know what it was as an opposition. I knew what it was as a teammate. I couldn't wait to hear that first dong. Uh, honestly, I, I, I have my perspective is like, how, how can an, a band or an artist get so charged up to play the same song 1,580 million times, right? Like how do they bring the same energy and the same love? For me to be able to swing open that bullpen door and hear the first, Dong, as you mentioned it, play and to have people go ape crap and you try and maintain a level of focus, but you couldn't wait for that moment either. Like you're nervous, but you're also like, let's get the third out, man. So, cause I want to get in there and, and compete and I want to hear the, the crowd react and I want to hear the music of ACDC's Hell's Bells. And all that it entailed, and it became it became larger than life. I mean, it was the ball entrance song. Some guys have had some really good ones, but and I know I'm being a little bit partial, but it was it was off the charts. And our fan base helped do that. I think just the way it was created, the the, the amount of times that they had the chime, the amount of time they waited till I got to a certain spot in the field before the, the the lead guitar came in and then it just started ripping away at the lyrics. It just, the timing of it was awesome. It was almost like it didn't last long enough. Um, you had to get your eight pitches in. You had to like realize, <laughs> Hey, that was fun. But now the real work's going to happen because you've charged up the other side. They would like nothing more than to just pop the balloon in your parade that uh, you just created. <laughs> And uh, send you home with a big fat L. And, you know, it obviously it didn't help one way or the other as far as the ball crossing the plate more often than not. But I could always rely on a little bit of an adrenaline kick from uh, uh, that song. Other side of the coin, though, Swings, it had to be somewhat intimidating to when you're the opposition. You just start hearing that music. Does it go advantage Hoffman in that situation, especially if the, you're, you're a young player? Yeah, I don't think you feel like you're popping the balloon uh, that Trevor <laughs> talked about. Uh, it was very intimidating. Um, it, it had the ability and it upped the ante in your concentration level, which I think is fascinating. That's the one-on-one -on -one matchup that I don't think uh, our <laughs> listeners understand. Um, that's what it becomes. Yes, there's people behind Trevor, um, trying to to uh, play defense behind him, but it's that one on one matchup that makes it so fascinating about the the sport of baseball. Uh, interesting, Trevor. Um, I think it's it, it's fascinating to hear somebody on the opposition, and this is a former teammate of yours, Mike Piazza. Some pitchers fool you, 
Some guys overpower you. Hoffman embarrasses you. That's why I think it's important to get perspective on your peers that you're going against. And uh, that's fascinating to hear. What, what's your feeling of that? Well, uh, what an honor to have those type of words spoken about you from a guy that I share the, the, hall, the hall of Fame with, um, a guy that I remember competing hard against. Mike was a fierce competitor, um, wanted nothing more than to get the big hit to propel his team. And let's face it, I mean, Mike had some pretty good success. Um, I don't think I embarrassed him enough times because um, <laughs> I felt rather embarrassed out there on the mound when um, there's, I mean, <clears throat> embarrassed is a strong word. I, I, I will say uh, there was a few times when Mike would, would make contact with a ball and he would look up not knowing where the ball went and it went out of the ballpark down the right field line and he's looking out in left field and has to realize that uh, he had a homer. I thought that was funny. I thought, you know what? I can't believe he didn't know where he hit that. And, you know, he made great contact and great power that he has, but I thought it was hilarious that there were times when he didn't know where the ball went. Um, but he was, he was, you know, a guy that not only had great power, he, he, he could whittle the bat. Like he was, he hit for average. He knew how to work a count. He knew the situation, whether or not, you know, you might want to try and work around him to get to the next guy and not let him beat you. But, uh, he had a knack for the theatrics um, and worked extremely hard at his craft. I had the good fortune of being a teammate of his in San Diego. And um, I think he respected the way I went about my business. He got a, a, a chance to be a part of that. I think the part that he didn't like was, you know, after the game for a guy that only threw three outs, there was such a litany of crap that I would go through with icing my shoulder with <laughs> the hive of mat. He just wanted to get on the bus and go. And sometimes he would get so irritated that, we would have to wait around um, an extra 15, 20, 30 minutes to get on the bus. And he was like, I don't get it. You, you, you threw eight pitches tonight or 10 pitches and we're, we're waiting on you. Let's go, uncle, he, he would say. <laughs> so maybe I dragged it out a little bit just because I knew it irritated him a click or two. But uh, it, was, it was fun to compete against. He was fun to compete with. Uh, Mike's class act. The ideal uh, thing is competing and competing against star players from every team. Does one stick out the most, in your opinion, that uh, gave you the most challenges? Yeah, Todd Helton was a guy that uh, numbers-wise had a lot of success. Um, guys aren't supposed to hit 400 in the big leagues. You know, they reserve that for when they're in Little League or high school or whatever. And I guarantee you, uh, Todd's numbers are like, close to 500 in a career again. And this isn't like a small sample. He probably had upwards of 30 at bats and most of the time in, in tough situations. So he had my number. Um, I enjoyed competing him. Every time I stepped onto the rubber and I saw him coming up to the plate, I felt like I had a shot at getting him. And <laughs> almost every time it ended up with a, a base hit somewhere, a, a line drive, you know, through the 5.5 five hole. Um, it frustrated the crap out of me, but, uh, man, it was, it was fun to compete. Trev, I want to put you on the spot. I think anyone who knows you uh, or who's been around you in this game understands that you are the consummate team <laughs> player, and it's never about you individually, and that's why I say I'm putting you on the spot because I want this to be an individual question to you. 18-year uh, career, seven-time All-Star. Is there a moment 
in your mind that you view as your personal signature, your stamp in your mind that jumps out? Yeah, I, I, I think um, I couldn't give you the year. I forget the year, but I know it was in September. It was part of a pennant drive, uh, maybe 06. And uh, we, were, we were heading towards securing a playoff berth in the West. Uh, and I was marching towards a major league baseball record and saves um, trying to catch and pass Lee Smith. And it culminated amongst the two. And I would, I would have to say that was probably my signature moment in that Saturday night. I tied Lee's record before 78, a packed house on a day Sunday game the following day and got the opportunity. Didn't have to do it on the road, got to do it in front of the, the home fans, got to do it where we needed the wins to, to maintain a lead in the division uh, before we headed off on the road to finish up the season. And you just couldn't, you couldn't have scripted it much better to be very honest with you. Two, two back-to-back nights within, you know, 14 hours of one another to be able to get it done. Uh, end of a, end of the, end of the homestand, end of the season at home. It was, it was incredible. Uh, Trevor, in, in I want to, Bounce to 2014. And why I say that is MLB renames uh, the best NL reliever award under your name, Trevor Hoffman. Uh, the American League is Mariano Rivera. Why I bring that up is your career is paralleled. Mariano Rivera, enter Sandman, you, Hell's Bells. But doing it uh, and watching him in a different lens. Give me your perspective on Mariano Rivera. Uh, in the same craft that you had. Yeah, Mo is uh, equally as dedicated to his craft, having had a chance to talk to him uh, about his views on how he approached his, his game. I mean, he was a one-pitch guy. You know, I I had to kind of maneuver through at-bats, you know, try and get ahead with a fastball to get to my out-pitch to change up. There was, there was nobody had any, you know, research to do they knew that mo was going to throw the cutter and you couldn't hit the cutter and uh he was really dominant with it and his success rate was it speaks for itself and so i admired his career from 2500 miles away Uh, i was on the west coast i usually got to see the finish of those games and for two-thirds of the country nobody was up when i would come in i kind of liked it that way i was able to go about my business um, it was always kind of that carrot out there that, you know, Mo got one tonight. I'm going to try and go out and get one myself. Uh, I want to preserve a win for my team. I want to, you know, just keep plugging away. Um, I respected again, the way he approached the game, the way he went about his business. It was a lot of fanfare. He wasn't pointing at hitters when he punched them out. He'd go up, shake the catcher's hand after he got his job done. And, you know, his numbers, speak for themselves. I mean, it's one thing to have a paralleled um, maybe regular season career, but what he was able to achieve and accomplish in the postseason with five rings and um, the numbers under one ERA and 50 plus saves in the postseason is just really incredible what he was able to accomplish. Um, so to even be mentioned uh, in the same light is, is pretty incredible. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that uh, 
I get the, to name the National League reliever of the year with my namesake, um, as he does with the American League. And we get a chance to deliver that in the World Series, um, usually game three or four. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, much respect for the guy that got it done on the East Coast. Yeah, interesting. Uh, both guys, signature pitches. The cutter, yours, the changeup. Um, fascinating stuff because uh, it was the respect of whole Major League Baseball that that both of you had that represents those awards. And congratulations on that. Uh, the one thing I want to mention, and there's a lot of people to thank, Trevor, and you've always, if anyone's heard an interview with you, uh, you thank a lot of people. It's about your teammates, about everybody else. But one man in particular sticks out in my mind as a former teammate is Bruce Bochy. Can you put in perspective what he meant for you and in your career? Yeah, Boach, uh, Boach really had an impact not only in my career but uh so many others and it was it was fun to see Boach grow in in his role like I remember vividly him coming from the third base coaching box getting the opportunity to be our manager and to see how uncomfortable he was addressing his team in spring training at the first couple of years and it was something he really worked on it was something that you know, he wanted to get better at. But the one thing he didn't have to work on was his relationships and how honest he was and how fair he was with his, his, his players and how much respect they had knowing he was going to always be prepared and how that door was always open. People always talk about it, but it was always open. If you ever wanted to discuss maybe how you're being used, you know, moving forward, what your role was, um, what he thought of you, you know, all sorts of things that uh, you might want to know. He would be willing to talk to you about it. And he, had, he did it in such a way that you felt like if you did go in there, you'd apologize to him on the way out that uh, you would ever second guess or you would ever contemplate him not having a, a reason why he would have done the things that he did. But uh, it was great to see him mature over time in that his speeches that I mentioned not being so great at the beginning became rallying cries. Like he would spend a lot of time preparing for those moments to, to really set the tone for his teams moving forward throughout the year. And so guys would be like, I remember just couldn't wait to get to spring train so I could hear what Boach had to say for that particular year on what, what we're going to, what we're going to try and accomplish and how we're going to try and, get to the top of the mountain and, and, and know that uh, he was going to set forth a plan on what was going to be expected of every guy that was in that, that, that room. Um, and the things that maybe we didn't do great last year, you know what he would address and say, if we do things better and we, we shore these things up, they're going to lead to better days. And uh, you know, it's a sign of a true leader. Um, it's a, it's a sign of someone that uh, embraced those challenges and I was, I'm very thankful that I got a chance to play for him. Uh, obviously, he went on and had tremendous sec success up in San Francisco. Uh, that's well documented with three world championships in five years. Um, but I think he cut his teeth down in San Diego and getting to know how to push guys' buttons and, and how to put people in situations to be successful and not to make that, not be afraid to make the hard decision. Uh, he's had superstars that he hasn't necessarily put on playoff rosters. 
Uh, he's had superstars that he's had to maybe not utilize in, in ways that they thought they were going to. And those, those are situations that I think you learn over time that it's not about the one individual. It's about the team. Uh, Trevor, there's, Clearly, one thing this year has taught all of us is that you never can predict uh, one day to the next, never mind looking down the road too far. But as you've pointed out, you've had a chance to meet some extraordinary people uh, in your run through your baseball life. Before we let you get out of here, what do you think the next few years looks like for you? What would you like to be involved in? Where's your heart now? Man, my such a such a large question um, as we sit and we're, we deal with a pandemic as we deal with the partial shutdown of our game where fans can't come and participate. Um, the youth movement, the, the, the lack of minor league play. Um, I, just, I just hope that as we look back on this conversation that things calm down a bit, that uh, some normalcy comes back to our game and, 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 and we get a chance to look at from a rear view mirror and go, Hey, these, some of these decisions that were made were beneficial for the game. We're going to come out of it stronger and better and, and a, and a better product than, uh, than what we went into it. And so from a personal standpoint, I don't, I don't really have an agenda that uh, I'm looking to seek out and change the world. I, I, I want to see the San Diego Padres be able to lift up the trophy and eat all the cake they can as, as those guys uh, hmm. seem to, to, to be looking for. And uh, to have the city of San Diego be proud of a champion, um, it's something that has eluded this great city. And I'd love to, uh, to see those guys um, do something like that. Well, I got to tell you, on behalf of all of us who've enjoyed this game for so many years, you've been a huge part of it. Uh, we really appreciate your time with us on this episode, buddy. Guys, I appreciate you giving me the platform, and uh, thank you so much for today. It was great. Thanks so much for checking out Major League Beginnings. If you had as much fun as we did, we hope you'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button where you usually download your podcast from. It could be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.